I have living proof you can draw something on a napkin and it can come to fruition. Nothing else matters. Amen. Lots of people aren't talking about this yet, but they absolutely will be over the next 10 years. Well, that's a relief. It was a complete and utter surprise to me. And a bit of chaos. Oh, 100%. So thanks so much for joining us today, Natasha, and we're super excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. So you grew up around Sydney and you lived all around the world uh, for work and for family, and now you're almost full circle, but back in Perth this time. First, would you start off by telling us a bit about your early life and upbringing? Okay, I can do that. Um, One of the things I think is interesting about my upbringing is that I grew up with a father who's an atheist, not an ugly atheist. You know, some people get really angry about being an atheist. He's not like that. He's very open-minded, but he's an atheist. And my mum is a devout Christian. And I put those two things into consideration because both of them are deeply good people who act in a very similar manner um, and never propose to try to stop the other person being themselves. So we grew up in a house, and my parents have probably been married for, gosh, I think it's over 50 years now. But we grew up in a house where certainly we were brought up in a faith tradition. But, for example, my dad would still come to church sometimes if we performed or saw us sing. So there was a a civility about a distinction in the way people believed, but there was also an open-mindedness. But what it causes you to do from a very young age, and I've thought about this a lot, is to be really interested in ethics and to be very, very interested in how are we to live and what's the purpose of life, um, what's the purpose of um, faith and traditions, and even if you say that they're denuded of any spiritual power, why do people in groups behave in a certain way? So I think that part of my up bringing is interesting to me because I think it has had an impact on the things that I've chosen to follow in my legal career, which is what is the future of the law? How should the tendrils of the law play out? And in doing that, I've spent a lot of time exploring. I've spent years and years exploring comparative religions and um, comparative ways of living ethically to try to understand how, how people do best. So some of that just comes from that very early childhood across Sydney and small town of Port Macquarie is observing my own family dynamic. Well, that's super interesting. Um, Do you think that that had your family dynamic had an influence on you kind of getting into law? Did did any of those things kind of cross over? Absolutely. Um, Well, my family dynamic, my parents are extraordinarily hard workers. So that had an impact. We were always taught to value education, which is probably not an unusual family value, um, but then also taught to value kindness. So if I, if I was to try to think about what my parents would say, I'm grateful that they never told us to value our looks, if you will. They didn't. They thought that was a fleeting thing. And I do think it's something that's probably missing, makes me sound like an old fogey, is there's a lot of emphasis on body and what your body is doing and what your body looks like. Whereas I can honestly say from both my parents' direction, my dad was always interested in what's your mind doing? Like, have you read enough? Are you interested? You know, what are you thinking about? Um, And my mum spent a lot of time asking us, what's your character? Are you a person who is building a character of, that's a, you know, is what you're doing edifying? 
Are you being kind? So very different, not a lot of time saying, of course, be well presented, um, but not a lot of time making sure that you had beautiful makeup on, for example. It was about who, what your heart was like and what your mind was like. And did you have a couple of siblings growing up? I did. I'm one of four. I'm very interested in that because I can tell you what, if you've got close siblings, they spend a lot of time telling you what's wrong with you and that's a very healthy <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> so you can't get too big a head when you've got lots of siblings. Um, and, yeah, you will certainly have your edges knocked off you and also you have a tribe. So I do think we we never went without, um, but we we learnt, yeah, we learnt to make do with what we had as a family. I, I can't, I'm not sure I can place you, Natasha, as like the oldest child or the middle child or the youngest. Where, where did you fall? I am the second eldest. But I was going to say that. I should have I should have just gone for it. <laughs> you should have just gone for it. And I'm a number two, um, but there was a few years when my sister had left home that I was being a bit of a number one with my younger two siblings. And then also when I went and I, I did some time volunteer teaching in Zimbabwe and I brought my younger sister over. I'm not sure in hindsight if it was a good idea or a bad idea, but in that relationship, I was actually effectively her legal guardian. So there was a bit more of mum happening there rather than rather than just um, big sister. So yeah, I probably acted in a few different roles in the family, but never got the benefit of being the youngest child who just gets kissed and loved all the time. Amen. I can relate to that. I'm number two as well. So I've also done the same thing, kind of set in all the roles. Yeah. Um, yeah. So practically, how did you get into law? Like, where did you study and what was that like? Okay. So, it's you know, it's so funny. I haven't thought of, I'm, I'm getting on, right? I haven't thought about some of these questions for a very long time, but I was giving some information to someone um, just yesterday and I said, oh, I did that about 25 years ago. <laughs> and then I, I even said to my daughter, who's now in second year at uni or about to go to third year of uni, and said, oh, my God, I just said 25 years ago I was working somewhere. So, yeah, so where, what did I do? I actually, um, I was doing economics and then I did, I went from economics to going to law and I didn't even, you know, when you do something that's you don't have any anticipation of, and so I wasn't even looking to see if I got into law or not, got into law. I wasn't sitting there waiting to see if it came in or out. And then I just remember my dad, he was looking for one of my cousins who just finished year 12. And he said, hold on, this is your name saying that you've got into law. So it was a complete and utter surprise to me when I got into law. I was just not even expecting that. So it was like one of those moments where you sort of have a sliding doors, the, the world shifts of who you are. So then I did my law degree at University of Newcastle. I, as I said, I grew up in Port Macquarie, so that's where a lot of us went to uni. And it's also where I met my husband so, and some other very dear friends. Yeah, so went from university, did economics law, and then went on to work at Allen's in Sydney. That's where I started my career. So I think a lot of students struggle to kind of get a foot in the door after finishing their law degree and it's quite difficult to get that first job what was that experience for like like for you and did you have strategies about that well I didn't struggle to get I think I got about seven or eight offers from big law firms which 
wasn't because I had perfect marks. So I'm going to say that to encourage people rather than discourage people. But what I did have was a extreme determination that I would get a role. I was like burn the bridges level of I wanted to go into a big firm. I wanted to have the, you know, the highest experience that in my mind was the highest experience that I could have. And my husband tells a story that he fell in love with me when he looked at me carrying, well, I used to drag a full-sized suitcase around the university because I'm much older than you and there wasn't digital, there wasn't like, you know, there wasn't a lot of stuff on the internet. So I used to carry around physical clippings and newspaper clippings, every document that had been published by any of the big firms. And I physically used to carry them all around because I wrote all my applications in a very bespoke way. I knew everything about every partner I was going to apply for. So I didn't leave a lot to chance in that respect. I probably was like a massive stalker who knew everything and everyone because I was so determined to get those offers. That's that's really inspiring though. I mean, obviously you also got great results. Um, How does what you were doing when you got that first job compare to what you're doing now with the point of the question kind of being do you think that junior lawyers need to worry about getting into the right role straight away or you know being in the right field of practice no so short answer is uh, well it's a lot of it is the same you got different slightly different tools but i don't know if this will be if you ask me this in five years i don't know if i'll say the same answer but right now it's largely the same i would say about 75 percent of the work as a lawyer is very similar to what i did when i started um, however, your second part of the question is about whether lawyers would consider that they are stuck in wherever they start. And I would say boldly, no, definitely not. Uh, I just watched too many people and too many people who had that heartbreak moment where they, you know, didn't get into the firm that they had proposed to get into and they have the crisis of confidence, but effectively, like if you are a, um, you can still do a lot of changing in the first three to four years. You know, law firms are like cults. Lots of people drop off <laughs> as they go along. So actually, if you're somebody who is hardworking and a really good technical lawyer, you pretty much around the third to fourth year, as the world has currently worked, in your third to fourth year period, you can still, you know, you, you, there's always people looking for solid juniors um, to that senior associate level. I think if you've been in one practice always and you're looking to make a sea change at... You know, at 50, that might be a little bit more difficult, but hopefully by then you've probably saved enough money to, to have some more options, inshallah. Well, that's a relief. Um, so after Allen's, you worked in the US Court of Appeal and then also the Federal Court of Australia until 2005, and then you didn't return to the legal world until 2015. What happened in that time period? Oh, well, that, that should prove to you that you don't have to do everything exactly the same. What happened in that period is I had four beautiful children and we lived in lots of different countries following my husband's work. So, yeah, so I um, was doing my part to bring some more humans to the planet. Um, some people may have a, think that's not a good idea, but um, so far it's been a wonderful thing for us. So, yes, I had four children. Um, Indira was born in Melbourne, Connor and Edmund were born in the United Arab Emirates and Arthur was born in Singapore. So I was busy, yeah. Um, That's a very busy time period. And I do believe I have enormous respect for 
parents of very young children because even when we do the hardest things in law, I used to think I worked really hard. And even when I've come back to the law, even when you're working really hard, if you've got very young children, you're working even harder because, you know, sometimes you get to get up eight times a night with a crying baby or whatever. It, it's, um, it's, a, it's a big thing, but so worth it. So very worth it. Yeah, I mean, studies show that um, parenthood is one of the most stressful um, experiences that a person can go through, but also one of the most rewarding and one of the ones that people reflect on um, near the end of life as being like um, uh, something that they deeply appreciate that they did as opposed to something they regret. It's interesting that you say that. I know that um, Jordan Peterson is somebody who is highly controversial in some circles, some not so controversial at all. But he said something I saw on a, a clip the other day that resonated with me, which is just saying when you do a lot of things or you bring a lot of people into your life, your life gets more complicated and it gets more messy, but it's very rich. Mm. And I would, I could never complain I don't have a rich life. I have mm. so much going on all the time, so much travel, so many people that I meet all over the world through my jobs and my roles. And the children bring enormous richness and character into my life every day. And a bit of chaos. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Um, and do, do your kids have like citizenship in like weird countries? Then I guess, or I mean, you know, like dual citizenship in Australia, and like what does that look like? I'm just curious. They're, they're all Australian citizens, so they're all descent by the register. There's some weird thing where if you're a descent by the register citizen and you marry a descent from the register citizen, there may be at some point there was like some question if that could cause citizenship problems for their children. Don't quote me on that. There was some question. Like, <laughs> But anyway, no, they're all Australian citizens. We, it, My mum was born in South Africa and my dad met her over there. And I always have in the back of my mind that my parents really fought to have my sister born in Australia. So it's, mm. a, it's certainly a, a country that is, a, is a, a land of plenty and a land of safety comparatively to many other countries. So I'm very grateful to, for that Australian citizenship. Yeah, well, as a Kiwi who just moved here, I uh, like Australia very much. So, Oh, New Zealand's pretty good too. It is pretty good too, yeah. That's great. I know that a lot of people at different stages of their careers, myself included, can worry about taking time out of the legal profession, uh, whether that be to have an OE or to be a parent, um, specifically a mom, or just to give something else a go. What would you? What advice would you give to people who are in this position? I don't know if they're going to listen to me if I give this advice because people, you know, sometimes people don't like advice. Um, oh, I just want to give people a hug and shake them, especially if they've got young kids. As as someone who was scared a lot in having ten years off, because I wanted to come back to the law, I didn't know if I was killing my career in inverted commas by taking such a gap to look after the kids. I just think there's so much pressure people put on themselves and also mortgages put a lot of pressure on people um, to do everything all at once. So there's a lot of people who are trying to juggle a lot. And I just want to say, God, please don't think if you have a year off or please don't think if you have two years off or three years off, you won't be able to get back in. You can. I mean, I'm living proof of that. I had 10 years off and I came back in and I think it served me very well. Would you say that there are like some important steps you can take to upskilling or keeping up that help when you transition back into the law? 
Yes, there are. Um, I'm, I've said this on other public forums. So at risk, risk of being boring, I would say if you are outside the workforce and you take a big gap, then probably just baking cupcakes won't get you back into the workforce. But I did some things which were a bit different. So I learned to speak Mandarin. Um, I ran a not-for-profit when the kids were little, which sort of ebbed and flowed and... Um, Yes, still working with some of the people we did not for profit work with at that time. Got um, safe active street infrastructure in our local community. And what else I would say, um, my biggest thing is reading. So I don't think it's hyperbole to say I would have read thousands of books in that time that I was off. I was still reading and learning. So my mind was active and I, I do always think that it gave me a, yeah, it gave me a, a slightly different shaped mind when I came back to the law, which was useful. Do you have any favorite books that like really stood out to you and um, you think had like a significant impact on your life? Okay, just for all the audience to know, we didn't pre-record, <laughs> we, did, we, didn't, <laughs> we didn't have this question written down. Gosh, that's like asking me who's my favorite child. Um, I know. Like a question, oh, a book that definitely impacted me was Anna Karenina as a piece of fiction. I don't know if it would impact me the same way now, but when I read it the first time, I found it very impacting. That's a piece of fiction. Oh, God, that's too hard, Luke. There's, there's, you know, every day I get impacted by a book. I could throw you 10 books that are sitting around me now that are impacting me every day. So, no, probably I'll, I'll, th I'll send you some for the, for the links afterwards. Hey, well, the classic Russian literature isn't a bad pick. Oh, it's just extraordinary writing. Now you're back in the legal profession. Can you tell us a bit about how that happened? Well, um, when I got my youngest, Arthur, in his first, his, so his first year of real school, so he'd done his prep year, I literally was at the school gate. I walked out the school gate and I put applications in to two law firms with trepidation. I truly thought no one would want me. I, yeah, I really didn't expect. And also we had some discouraging comments from other people who were working saying, oh, there's always someone smarter and younger than you. <laughs> and I love, actually, I'll tell you a great story, is then when I went to um, where I ended up with at Herbert Smith Freehills, I ended up on my, on my interview day, so I was amazed I got an interview for starters. And I have really shout out to Mal Cook, who hired a stay-at-home mum with 10 years off. But, yeah, I was on this interview. And one of the beautiful lawyers who was at HSF at that time was a former Miss Universe. I didn't know her then. And there was also someone in another law firm in the same building. Both of them were absolutely drop-dead gorgeous six-foot blondes. And I remember being in this elevator looking at my reflection going up to this interview and I had these two gorgeous very tall you know model level of beauty women around me in beautiful clothing I was thinking oh my god who's ever going to hire a middle-aged woman back into the law firm um but they did so and when you started what were you doing and how has this role evolved well, I went into, because I'd been a competition lawyer at Allen's and they didn't really have a competition practice in Perth. So uh, they put me in litigation and I 
I can't say I love being a litigator because I find conflict very, very stressful. So I wasn't, I wasn't the best person to be a litigator. And even more so than that, my brain sits perpetually in what the next 10 years looks like. So litigation spends a lot of time thinking about the past. So it was, a, it was largely a mismatch of brain type. Um, but very soon I naturally started moving into doing more and more technology and then, um, yeah, very gratefully moved into Tony Joyner's team at HSF in technology. And from there, um, things went crazy in a really good way and eventually started running the digital law group at HSF and that was across many, many countries and an absolute gorgeous number of the, some of the most clever, creative lawyers from every practice group. We were running that team, still going under Susanna Wilkinson, um and alex in the uk but it it was just this i suppose we were like a little special forces team which was working on um, digitalization and yeah spent that time a lot of traveling a lot of working with international teams and getting to speak to um, some of the global execs and senior leads in some of the biggest industries and companies in the world and learning a lot was that a practice that was already established when you started there? No, that was that was a new practice. But that's what I'm saying. I was probably, as I always say, a bit older and a bit cheekier. So I probably wasn't as compliant as I should have been. And so I was like, we, sh- we need this thing. Um, and HSF was very gracious and allowed me to build the digital law group. What did building it up look like? Um, uh, I think if anybody's entrepreneurial... There's, there's a quote by Elon Musk where he says that sometimes building new businesses, and it's very it's very similar if you're going to build a new practice inside a law firm, there's there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of convincing that you need to do. You've got to show cause, et cetera. And Elon talks about it's kind of like building an aeroplane as it's falling from the sky while you're eating glass. So there's a lot of highlights, but there's also just a lot of grind and just um, what's the word? Being obstinate. If you think there's something that needs to be built, you've got to be prepared to continue to, you know, as my, I think it's Pac-Man that they, my kids describe me and you just got to continue to, to keep punching, punching forward. Never say die. Sounds like a lot of hard work um, and obviously perseverance as well. But a lot of reward. I mean, the team was, the team is, they're just, the people imagine you lawyers are very clever people anyway then you go into a big law firm you do get the creme de la creme of people who usually got pretty good cvs they're usually pretty clever they've got they've got the the base material to work with but then in a team like that you're also getting the creatives so those were these were fun people to be around if you wanted to get um a lot of brain stimulation what were thinking back what were some of the things that um about building up that practice that maybe you didn't expect to be challenged by at the time and kind of caught you by surprise um someone you know one of the executives said to me at hsf once you can only go as fast as the partnership and so if you're somebody who likes to who sees what's coming and you want to just you want to go at that speed, you have to take other people on the journey and not everything that's obvious to you will be obvious to everyone else. And also that the status quo is very comfortable for a good reason. Like people aren't stupid. They know what the KPIs that that get them what they get. 
So if you're planning to come in and change things, then you should expect to be a splinter in, in some ways because, you know, not everybody likes change. Yeah, and what did you, I guess what did you learn going through that process about um, communication and bringing people along for the ride with you? And this won't be terribly popular, but I think, and my girlfriends from my stay-at-home mum days will tell you I learned to speak more in a masculine way. So, it, and again, I apologise to anyone who takes offence to thinking of these in binary gendered ways, but I learnt to say things like, I am going to tell you three things. We will do these six things. They are. So I spoke more in lists than I would normally speak. That was probably definitely had to change my communication style to match. I mean, law firms, are they just are. They have a more masculine energy and they definitely have a, just on the numbers, which people are working really hard on bringing more female representation into senior ranks, but traditionally there's more male leadership, which tends to favour, let's call it the efficient communication style. Yeah, definitely. That's a really interesting point and one that's probably people tend to avoid um, because of it's 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 kind of taboo uh, to a degree. Um, and it's really interesting. And I think, of course, there there's probably a degree that well, there is a big degree of that that comes from um, senior leadership in the legal industry being dominated by men. But also, um, you know, something from from my industry, um, technology and um, thinking about um, venture capital, for instance, um, male founders are funded at much higher rates than female founders, and and even even by um, women VCs as well. It's really interesting um, when you control for the startup, um, like the pitch to the investor. When you control for that, it's the same pitch, but told by a masculine voice or a feminine voice. As someone who's a founder. My husband often jokes, he says, just you hand me all your notes and I'll go and stand in front of you. <laughs> Sometimes, we, you know, when you have those stats against you, but again, tenacity helps. But I think I think the statistic is for female tech founders is like two to three percent of investment. Yeah, it's 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 um, it's a massive disparity. But yeah, I think to your point, um, you I think without accepting the status quo, I think it is really valuable to play with the cards that you're dealt and be aware of them um, and use them as much as you can to your advantage. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is I can honestly say I didn't leave HSF or I didn't leave large corporate with a feeling of anger towards men or, or something like that. I actually have enormous compassion um, for the demographic of men that have built these industries because you know they there's a lot of them who have gone through a time where they didn't get time off for parent like they they missed out on a lot of things too they didn't have parental mm. they've just sort of been you know hammering the tree so to speak chopping down trees non-stop for for decades so i think the men have worked really really hard and i would also say there's some things i mean i do think it's harder to be a female don't get me wrong but there's some things where i could get away with certain things that uh sort of a a white man couldn't get away with. So I could certainly yeah. be a little bit more cheeky or a little bit more playful where I'm sure they felt like they had to be more buttoned down, especially in the last, you know, even in the last five years, there's a lot of buttoning down that was needed, um, but some of it probably 
has just felt like a prison for people who, you know, everyone wants to be authentic. Everyone wants to not people to think they're a bad guy. So. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking as a man um, in these conversations, I think um, I personally really appreciate um, the nuances and, and, and hearing the nuances in the discussion, um, because I think you're exactly right. And I agree with you on all of those points. Um, and yeah, it's, I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's true. So you're also a member of advisory committees of the Law Council of Australia and then the Law Commission of England and Wales. Can you talk a bit about the purpose of these organisations and how you got involved and what you do today in them? Okay, so um, let's start with UK and Wales. That's from, again, from being at Herbert Smith Freehills, because as I said, I was doing a lot of work in the UK at that time. And you've got Commissioner Sarah Green there, who is an absolute superstar. And she's somebody who has spent a lot of time trying to bring the law, uh, ask questions about what the future of the law should be, and then working to get legislative change where it's needed, including in digitisation. So she, um, you know, has done a good job of not... She, she will bring people from all over the world to help. Uh, there's some of us who'd been involved with decentralised autonomous organisations and digital assets. We had done a lot of work in submissions um, from HSF and through the DLA. And yeah, so we got asked to do that role. And yeah, it's um, it's really important to have global conversations about changes to the law because we do tend to, when it's good law, it does tend to have contagion effects across multiple jurisdictions. And most of us are global let's call ourselves global citizens. So we use platforms that are everywhere. So it does help if there's consistency between legal jurisdictions. Don't want everything to be the same, um, but it does help. So that's that's UK and Wales. And then I'm on two committees in Australia. So the Law Council does some amazing work. A lot of it's probably unsung. And like even in the last, gosh, there's some people like Pip Bell unbelievable like the number of submissions people don't understand like imagine this big changes like changes to digital identity changes to the future of tokens changes to the future of digital signing actually some really important things about ai and then you've got these people who are all volunteering so there's not you have to get invited to be on these committees but they will sit there and try to nut out what the future of the law should be it's a really hard job and it's all done as volunteer labor so there's some, as i said there's some unsung heroes, Philip Argy, Susanna Wilkinson, there's people who are there, you know, making um, the future of the law safer, just putting their sweat into it. What do you enjoy about being involved in those sorts of committees? I think that you get access to seeing what's being said from different parties. So you don't only want to hear your own thoughts. It's important to hear what different people are saying. Uh, that that would be the main thing is that diversity of opinions in some of those committees uh, and also solidarity because usually people who end up in those committees are people who are reasonably conscientious and again they're people who are thinking about the future so they're good people that's really interesting um so within 10 years of coming back into the legal profession you founded sterling uh, and rose a specialist technology law firm really focusing on crypto and the broader metaverse specifically. Um, what urged you to take the leap from working in a firm to building one from the ground up? It's just it's the new mountain to climb. Is like we all get set in our souls of, of this path of, 
I did that. I, I built that in HSF and then I knew that I needed to get, a, you know, is it a bigger shell? I needed to, to find my next shell. I feel like I read a book like that to my kids when they were little. It was called Finding a Shell and it was about the, the animal that needs to get a new shell as it grows. And I think I was changing and growing and I, I needed a new challenge. And Lord, building your own business and your own law firm, that's its own, you know, special set of challenges. Uh, again, no regrets. I have to say, I don't, I don't think, and I hope this is not a difficult statement to say, I don't live with many regrets because I usually take the most scary path ahead of me most of the time. So I'll do what's hardest and scariest. Um, and Sterling, it, it would have in some ways been easier to just stay what I was doing. That's a, that's a well-trodden path. Um, but a scarier path was to say, I don't see a lot of female-led law firms. I don't see a lot of women going to build new law firms and I don't see a lot of women building in tech. There are definitely women in those places and there's certainly a lot of women building certain types of law firms. Like if you were to go into family law, there's not enough men probably building family law firms. Um, but, yeah, it, it, I won't lie and say that my gender didn't have an impact on me wanting to say no I want I want to build I want to build a law firm that does things slightly differently where the voice inside the law firm is slightly differently and if you could have a, a a diverse voice at the top so it's not even actually it's not even just about female like our managing partner James you want to see terrible statistics in female um, leadership is that my managing partner James who could be one of the cleverest lawyers that have ever met uh he uh is from myanmar at birth and again asian i used to go to all the asian lawyers because i speak mandarin i used to go to a lot of their events and their representation to get into partnership in law firms that's offensive i mean especially if you look at who gets the highest marks at schools um you, you do they you know they have legitimate cause for concern and complaint particularly in australia if you look at the demographics of how large our Asian population is inside of Australia, Australian Asians. Um, yeah, so we, we're trying to, to find a place for the people who could shape a different governance, a slightly different governance voice. And so far, yeah, I'm, I'm, I won't say it's not always fun and easy, but I'm completely in love with what we're building. That sounds like a, it's been a really interesting journey. And were you thinking about it for a while, uh, while you were at HSF, or was it more of a, hey, you know, it was like a spur of inspiration in the moment. Like, what, what was that no, like? I definitely wasn't thinking about <laughs> it. It was a spur of inspiration. And the only time that happened is when I was leaving HSF because there's another part of what I do, which is I run this tech company, Nurium. Um, but when I was leaving to go and do that, I had to actually, you get your practising, you, you lose your practising certificate because it's usually tied to your law firm. And I was like, oh, I don't I don't know if I'm prepared to give up. I've worked pretty hard to come back to be a lawyer and don't think I'm prepared to do that. And then someone said to me, well, you can just set up your own. It's not that hard. So then I was like, well, hold on. And then I was going to put sole practitioner down because, you know, I thought, well, I'm a pretty good lawyer. I can do that. And then I was like, oh, hold on. I might want some friends to join me. <laughs> and so I literally just ticked the box. Um, and then I had a one-week sabbatical in Denmark, Western Australia, and at that time... 
um, just did a lot of thinking and a lot of, um, you know, exit from my background traditions. So I've told you I spent a lot of time praying and thinking and meditating on what was, what I should do next. And this is, I literally had um, some friends together, Rachel Howard, and we drew it on a napkin. We It was a napkin story. There's Sterling and Rose on one side and Nuriam on the other. And if this is the napkin, I have living proof you can draw something on a napkin and it can come to fruition. <laughs> well, I think, um, yeah, that's that's quite an interesting story of how the law firm came about. Um, but one thing that stood out to me there was that there's a Denmark in Western Australia. <laughs> very much, very much confuses people because we have a property down there now. And if I tell people I'm in Denmark, it sounds far more exotic, although it is a very, very beautiful Denmark in down south WA. A warm one at that, I imagine. That was actually, no, Gion, honestly, it's actually probably one of the coolest places in WA. It's, oh, it's wow. very, very tall trees. Um, yeah, it's much cooler because it's so far south. Yeah. So you had um, this experience at HSF building a practice. And so there are a lot of those, um, you know, habits, activities uh, about building a practice that relate quite directly to starting your own law firm and probably starting another any other business as well. But what were some of the more unique challenges that you faced when you were going out on your own? So, yeah, so that's, that is absolutely true, Luke. So the, the, the discipline that I needed to get up the digital law group at HSF in terms of budgeting and proof points and use cases and who your clients would be, all of that work, um, and even the, the methodology of, of running a virtual team, because it was a virtual team, all of that I've definitely employed when I've come into Sterling and Rose. But what were some of the things... Well, it's just really practical things. You know, you need to go out and set up a bank account. You need to find people who want to come on the journey with you because you ain't got a lot to sell when you've got a napkin. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so um, to I can honestly say if a, a lawyer was to come from any large firm globally right now and plonk themselves into Sterling and Rose, 90% of their experience would be identical to a large firm. And that is because we learned, so many of us come from big firms, we learned what the AE standard was. What's your, you know, create templates, create, you know, you want everything that goes out to be beautiful. So the standards that you learn inside a large organisation, if you if you take those, let's call them the army level of standardisation, uh, you, you've got a pretty good roadmap. It's, it, it would be unfair of me to claim that I invented this all myself. I am standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of, you know, the things I learned at HSF and in trying to employ them and, and perhaps trying to think of the things I didn't quite like and, and doing them my way. Yeah. And it's interesting, something stood out to me there was um, kind of listing out the most important parts uh, that you're thinking about when you're building up a new practice. Could you kind of list those for me? So you talked about, you know, who is your customer, um, um, you know, all, all of those kinds of things. Like what do you think those those important um, practices, activities are to be thinking about when you are building up a new practice? Yeah, so the, just the normal stuff, which is you have to have a client roadmap. You have to have a business development roadmap and implementation plans. 
and then you have to have you like you do the general first principle work about what the purpose of your organization is thank you mal cook who's drummed that into me um you have to know what you're striving for as it like we did a lot of work on trying to work out who we were as a firm so we went and did the work of what we stood for you know what was the color that best represented us what is what is the I, when we started the practice, I was like thinking, I want people to, when they use Sterling and Rose to have the experience, which is kind of like, you're getting a, a beautiful envelope with a green velvet ribbon. And I wanted them to have this visceral, luxurious, but cheeky, but fun experience, but that really technically excellent, but some weird delivery and, you know, like, like the website is like, it doesn't look staid, it doesn't look boring and it captures the future. So we did a lot of that work. So know who you are, know what your purpose is, and then do the work of the grunt of how much money do you need to actually run this thing? How do you go and get the funding if you don't have the funding initially to do that? Because we had to obviously, you know, pull enough funds together to actually be able, able to set up a business. It's not, it doesn't cost nothing to set up a business like this. So yeah, doing that really banal things of all the contracts and shareholder agreements and making sure that you everyone has the right equity. This stuff takes a huge amount of time. But again, the lessons I've learned of setting things up properly at the start, it takes a lot longer to set things up. You could literally have just gone and put your shingle up in two seconds. But doing it properly, um, marketing, BD, clients, clients, clients. And the thing that Sterling and Rose, I hope is obvious, does differently is we are huge on thought leadership. So we spend a lot more time, I would say, than most lawyers thinking about the future of the law and articulating what those positions are through submissions, uh, government submissions all over the world. Yeah, really interesting. And I'm sure that that kind of structure is, is probably something that, um, you know, a lot of lawyers don't think about too often because, you know, they haven't had to, you know, go out and um, build a book of customers and, and figure out what they're going to work on. Um, but I think it's something that, that maybe it should be discussed more often and, and kind of disseminated through the, the legal sector. I think that would be quite useful. Um, yeah. So when you left HSF, you were doing so to start Nurium. Um, and through that process um, started Sterling and Rose as well. So Nurium um, is a, a, a tech company that cares about um, building infrastructure for digital assets. What makes you so excited and passionate about the future of digital assets in the area? Uh, what makes me so excited is the world is digitizing and we are in AI-driven economies and we'll consistently and in the future we, we, it is potentially that we'll have more digital assets than we have analog assets. Sitting as a lawyer in this space for many years, do not mistake me for just being a blockchain enthusiast or a crypto enthusiast. When you sit at the edges, you can see what's wrong. You can see what things aren't working. And then you also get an idea of, well, if we tweaked this legally and we changed this legally, what could be done right? So that is a lot of the lessons um, and a lot of the product development in Nurium is from looking at all these markets. Most people don't have the privilege of being able to see what's happening in the digital asset market, being able to see what's in legal services of traditional contracts, for example. And then we do a lot of AI advisory work. So then also seeing what's happening at the zeitgeist of AI. So through those lenses, we got a pretty interesting bird's eye view of how the world looks. I also, from being in a horizontal like law, you get in 
as I said, the conversations that I've had the privilege of having with very senior people across many, many boardrooms and many execs, you do you do start to understand what the meta problems the world is facing. And again, Nurium is an attempt to say, if there is going to be a world where we basically have data um, that is profoundly important in the way that we characterise data and packetise data, then we also are going to need to have infrastructure to support that. So yeah, Nurium is about saying, when you digitise money, you needed new payment rails. And we need to think about when we digitise things like critical assets, critical digital assets like contracts, there, there needs to be a new set of infrastructure to do that. For the uninitiated, could you talk a little bit about a few examples of what a digital asset is today? Like what are some examples of what, what would be considered digital assets today, but also then like maybe looking into the future, just a few examples of what digital assets might include in the future? Sure. So digital assets at the moment, um, it could be something so simple as an in-game asset. Okay, that could be your fighting sword in your in-game. And a good example of that is people starting to buy clothing for their avatars. So think about it so simplistically as that. It could be something like that, which feels a bit sci-fi and not very important to you, but it might feel important to your children who, as I said, I've done this presentation even to year sixes. And when you ask year sixes, do they care about the property they've built in Minecraft? They'll tell you, absolutely don't take that from me. That's mine. (laughs) So those are the the first of these gaming in-game assets. Then you look at all the crypto assets and some of them have underlying value. Many of them don't have any underlying value, but they do have speculative value, if you will. So some are used really as money, very clearly as money, like Bitcoin, Ethereum. I'll put a question mark if it's not just acting as money. Um, But then some of the other assets, they allow you to do things, like they may allow you to have rights inside a particular ecosystem and those, um, those tokens, or some of them are non-fungible tokens, NFTs, they could give you rights to a piece of art. They're effectively things that give you rights in digital uh, that aren't analog. They're not something, you know, it's not like a, a water bottle is a physical piece of property. Digital assets are when you're owning something in cyberspace that only has its curation in cyberspace and is packetized like that. Yeah, interesting. Um, equity in like a software company kind of feels like it could be a digital asset maybe. Like what do you think? What is that another example of like a digital asset? For the future, yes. And I say mm. that very strongly because we talk about them as AIOs or OWLs. Some people that have talked about them in the context of Web3 as decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. So the idea that in the future a company may be maybe run in an autonomous fashion is entirely likely just how long the timeline till that happens and again that's coming out of the web3 communities they foresaw these things whether they were perhaps too idealistic and thinking that the law wouldn't apply or you needed to have kyc or financial services lawyers poke their head in perhaps but all of these things end up driving um, assetization because people effectively use them as money you start swapping different things as money I'll give you an example of that is a, um, an ACU. So if you're tra- trading in carbon units, it's in, in, it's in the financial services regulation because people know that you'll start to trade those rights as a form of, I suppose, a form of financial service or money. If you get down to basics, what people are actually using them for. Yeah, interesting. Obviously, um, artificial intelligence is the topic of the day. 
Um, and we're starting to see more and more early applications of AI and the provision of legal services. You've spent a lot of time practicing in technology law and adjacent fields. Which areas of law do you suspect we'll see the fastest adoption of AI, specifically in the provision of legal services? I mean, we already, in terms of AI, narrow AI, it's been in the law for a very long time in discovery, in litigation, in M&A, in due diligence. And that's when you, I've said this so many times, again, I'm probably being boring, but when you have, you used to have lots of junior lawyers who'd sit around and literally look for the smoking gun document, whereas that's all done inside AI tools now, but not generative AI tools. So obviously what's hit the public consciousness and is very much is large language models and generative AI. That's that's kind of the new kid on the block. It's actually not that new. It's also been around for a few years, but hit the public consciousness really, I suppose, at the end of last year. How do I imagine that hitting more firms? So if you look at um, generative AI, although I, I would be so bold as to say that ChatGPT is is actually being really quite terrible at the moment. I don't think it's 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 being fine tuned with an inch of its life. It's not actually giving very good answers. Um, and this is not about hallucination. This is just over fine tuning so to the point of being useless. But some of them like Anthropics Claude or the proprietary models that are sitting inside um, inside Word. So you've got Copilot that's coming, that's being used in the Office 365 suite and Microsoft. Uh, a lot of these tools, they're broad spectrum tools. So it's not even just in one particular practice group, for example. This is a change in the way that we do our first iteration of anything. So if you're going to draft a document, you should be basically having your AI assistant who's helping you draft that first draft. Um, and if you're, you know, getting your your legal legal papers together for a dispute, you should be able to use AI to do that. Similarly, your IT department in a law firm should be able to use Copilot to help code things. There's there's almost nothing that I see in a law. You know, I think the stats that were put out by Goldman Sachs said that. In terms of the general population, they were only anticipating that about a 7% of jobs wouldn't be impacted. So if you believe that statistic, then I think you could say most of a law firm will be impacted by AI. And we shouldn't just look to current models to work out how AI is going to affect us. We, we shouldn't just look at things like hallucinations and say, oh, well, it's not very good, we're not going to use it. And we shouldn't look at the fact that some law firms have still been on pause while they're trying to work out, oh, what do we do with this technology um, to to decide whether it's going to impact us or not? It will impact. I mean, law is a chalk and talk industry. Um, it will have an Im incredible impact on the provision of law because there's so much of it that is repetition, and the same. You know, the intellectual property is sitting in the heads of lawyers, but if it's digitized and put into data that's surveilled, it actually can be. Um, done by AI model, some people would say in a more efficient and more accurate way in the future. From a regulatory perspective, what do you think about lawyers using generative AI? At the moment, if you're using Gen AI and you're not checking it, that's as bad as giving, well, probably worse than um, asking a, a lawyer who doesn't have, he's on a restricted practicing certificate to put their work out to the wild, that would be a problem on your practicing certificate because you need to sign off on that work. So we've got lawyers, we've got duties. Um, but I think the other interesting thing is when you do have duties, I believe in many, many industries, the law included, which we already have, we already have precedent for this, your duties will compel you to use AI. And that is, 
you know, we've talked about technology-assisted review. We have a duty to use technology-assisted review because it's it's cheaper and more efficient and actually more accurate on the stats. So when, when it comes to the point that using a human is less efficient and less accurate, that's a real turning point that we need to very seriously look at ourselves as an industry and ask what is the role of a lawyer if a, if a tool can do the job better. I mean, and I'm... I'm I suppose that I don't think people should have their head in the sand about that. But at the same time, I always like to say no one really likes what they're doing now anyway. Like no one wants to be trapped behind a computer sitting for 20 hours to do the billing. So maybe we need to rethink what we're doing because it's not particularly healthy, the current model anyway. Like you mentioned, um, AI is outperforming humans in a lot of other fields. And there's kind of this view that in the future, AI could possibly provide unsupervised legal service in particular legal areas. What do you think about that perspective? And do you have any kind of maybe ideas of what those areas will be or could be? I think, Ella, if you said that to 99% of lawyers, especially senior lawyers, you would completely freak them out. They'd think that's just bonkers that you even said that um, from a duties perspective. But the reason I'm probably going to hesitate and go with your thought concept is because I think we will head to a future where we have synthetic directors and we have synthetic um, individuals in governance and people who are able, synthetics who are able to have responsibility. But what the, the actual problem, as we call it at Sterling and Rose, is the responsible machine problem. So the reason you wouldn't have a synthetic lawyer act in the way the the role of a lawyer is because if the synthetic lawyer did something wrong, how do you find a synthetic responsible? So this is this is a key problem that sits in all decision making by AI systems. If you attempt to untether it from a person, sorry, from any a real person in inverted commas or a real company, I mean real companies still get back to humans with directors. But the law, the ultimate response of the law is the long arm of the law. So if you do something wrong, I can shame you because you're a person. If you do something wrong, I can put you in prison. There's things that we do to stop people doing the wrong thing. At the moment, the work we've done at Sterling and Rose, which I'm happy for people to have a look at, is we've said the only one we can think of, and we welcome other people to look at this responsible machine problem, is you can take money away. So if you made it compulsory for a synthetic company, like an AO, AIO, AIO, or you made it compulsory for a synthetic director or a synthetic uh, lawyer to have some kind of um, uh, amount of money that's curated in the spot that can be taken away if there's some, you know, some breach, then that might be a way of making responsibility take place because the law has to point the finger at something. That's how the law works. Um, the, the counterfactual to the responsible machine problem is about the creation machine problem, and we're starting to see the start of that as well. There was the there's been the well, well publicised Tala cases, which are about whether a, a an AI system would be able to actually create a patent. So again, you need to be able to find a human in order to establish a patent. So these things about creation and responsibility, even if you look at criminal law or some of the um, the breaches that you see in the Corporations Act, any span, what do you need to look for? You need to look for intent. 
So some of these very um, basic concepts of the law, what are they all looking for? They're looking for human um, bindings. And if you untether and move to a synthetic, like a synthetic lawyer that you've described, how do you punish that lawyer? And how do you use the law to actually give rights and empower the synthetic to be able to do their job? Lots of people aren't talking about this yet, but they absolutely will be over the next 10 years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on um, pretty much all of that. And I think, you know, personally, my view is that in the near future, um, the way that most professional services will change is that, you know, people like practicing lawyers will turn from the actual operators and practitioners to kind of intermediaries between clients and the services that they are seeking from um, companies. But I think um, it's really the 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 responsibility problem is super interesting and um you know maybe um i don't i don't think that we'll get around it in the near future but maybe it um uh points to like a fundamental um era a fundamental problem in like our value system as a society um and and maybe before we are able to like um, I guess set AI free to do these kinds of things. Like we'll have to reevaluate um, the like wider value system of like society in terms of like attributing responsibility um, and and trying to identify separate individual responsibility that's not like um, impacted by everything around uh, everything around us, um, which is like a whole another existential conversation. They don't. I don't anticipate a, a global kumbaya moment, if you will, across different <laughs> countries. I think we'll just bumble our way through AI and we will adopt AI everywhere through very pragmatic reasons like every piece of law that has an object usually has an object to do things most efficiently or to do things like safety legislation requires you to do things in a way that eliminates risk. So again, if you look at um, education legislation, it requires you to do the best that you can and get the most, most for, for students. Once you start looking at those objects in all the acts, you realise AI is inevitable because it's not its not like death by a thousand cuts unless you say AI is death, which is a, probably a fair proposition, but it is incremental adoption will drive full-scale adoption. And once we get to AGI, I read something the other day, we learn from mistakes, but there's no room for, because once you have AGI, you, you have AGI. There's no turning. Nothing else matters. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, um, yeah, I suspect probably, you know, well, number one, I prefer the slow iteration to, or, or even the fast iteration to, like, any kind of ultimate you know, turning point like um, AGI or, or you know, the, sing the singularity is, um, people often refer to it as because um, that's pretty that's even more existential so um, super interesting well um, thanks so much for joining us Natasha it's been an epic conversation I've really appreciated you joining us today um, where can people follow up with you well we're at www.stillingandrose.com or reach out at one of our info at stillingandrose.com or info at nurium.com and of course always on LinkedIn I'm a bit of a LinkedIn boffin so. perfect Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of File Notes. To keep up with the latest episodes and content, follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at File Notes Podcast. You can also visit us on our website at vxt.co.nz forward slash podcast forward slash file notes 
to subscribe to our email list and never miss an episode. That's vxt.co.nz forward slash podcasts forward slash file notes. See you there.